Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host and the content director here at Word on Fire. Today we have something really exciting to share with you. The first annual Word on Fire conference for priests. We brought together 300 priests from all over the world, and they all convened in Huntington Beach, California for a three-day conference led by Bishop Barron on the topic of preaching, on the art and act of proclaiming Jesus Christ. Bishop Barron delivered several talks, but he also had a wide-ranging Q&A session with the 300 priests in attendance, and their questions were really interesting, and the dialogue was lively. So we want to share that with you today, so sit back and enjoy this Q&A with Bishop Barron at the first-ever Word on Fire Conference for Priests. Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. We're here in Huntington Beach at the National Conference for Priests, brought to you by Word on Fire, and uh, we're here with 300 priests. And as always, we're here with good Bishop Barron. How are you, Bishop? Thank you. I'm doing great, Jared. Thank you. And it's just been a joy. It really has to be with all these great people. And uh, I've just been enjoying the days immensely. So terrific. Wonderful. And we also have a special guest with us as well, Mr. Matt Nelson. How are you doing? <laughs> Good to be here. Having a great time. So throughout the conference, we've asked the priests to drop a few questions uh, to, by our booth. And so for this show, we're going to go through those questions with Bishop Barron. And, and as we you know, said, this, this conference is about preaching. It's about homiletics, about sermons, about preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to the lay faithful, to the faithful of Jesus uh, in our church. And so there's so many wonderful questions in here. And I, I think it's good for us to just go ahead and get started. What do you think, Bishop? No, I don't think so. <laughs> No, well, go ahead. that does that. <laughs> I really, I just, I glanced at a couple of the questions. So I, I, I might be thrown for a loop here. I really haven't seen the questions in advance. All right. Well, to just get started right away. Okay. Uh, can you speak to storytelling in homilies? Um, yeah. Uh, when I was coming of age, I mentioned Jack Shea earlier, who taught me at Mundelein, and he was famous, you know, stories of God, stories of faith, and in his approach to homiletics, it usually was uh, the telling of a, in his case, beautifully crafted story. Uh, I'd certainly get that people tend to remember uh, narratives. They remember stories more than, you know, abstract uh, descriptions. What Dana was just talking about, uh, you know, the beautiful, tends to stay in people's imaginations longer than uh, an idea does. So I get that. Now, I've heard priests say over the years that some of them just aren't very good at storytelling, and they felt the pressure of that. Like, how do I put together a beautifully crafted story? Um, but here's, a, here's my major observation. As long as the stories we tell are drawn into the far greater and more compelling story of the Bible, the danger is running away from the Bible too quickly and telling our stories. You know? I would say draw our stories into the great biblical story. Be able to articulate that story really well and compellingly. Um, and, then, and then you can you can bring all things captive to Christ, including your own experience as you articulate it in a narrative way. But I wouldn't want it to be an excuse for running away from the Bible. And that's what, what I think I saw when I was coming of age, too much of that. So stay with the wonderful narratives of the Bible. 
Uh, Dana mentioned uh, Faulkner. I remember as a, an old man, Faulkner was asked by some students, what do you read? And he said, the Bible, mostly the Old Testament. And of course, you know, Faulkner, that's certainly true. It massively influences his own writing. But there's one of the great artists of the 20th century, and it was our book, you know, that he read. So, quick answer to a complex thing. Okay, good. Let's move on to the next question here. So this question takes into account the common experience of taking advice or recommendations from lay people about uh, your homilies and, and, your, and your preaching. So how do you, Bishop Barron, take the advice of the lay faithful when it comes to preaching? Hmm. I totally ignore them. No, I'm, t- <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. No, one thing I recommend it. I, I warmly recommend it. I think priests, if they can find a group of trusted uh, laity, that they, they respect and will be helpful and honest with them is, is share your, your um, homilies with them as part of your preparation. Um, I like that. I, I remember being part of a community years ago in Chicago where a group of us who all preached got together and we talked through our preparation. I, I love that. It was very helpful to me. So I think if you've got some people in the parish that are really good and you trust them, terrific. You know, work with them, hear from them. Also, your feedback. There's a guy from uh, actually my home parish in Chicago, St. John of the Cross, and he's a self-appointed um, sermon critic. So he, he came up to me. I gave this. And he came, I'm the um, uh, sermon critic here, and I want to tell you here's what I really liked about your homily, and here's what I, I didn't like. I thought, who cares? Go away. I mean, who? who? <laughs> so I, I wasn't too fond of him, but I think that's fine. If there are people that you know and trust and can give you really good feedback on a homily, terrific. Um, so I, I think that's very helpful. So the next question goes into more of the kind of technicality of it and ask the question about preaching from the pulpit versus walking around. Yeah, good. That's a good practical one. Um, you know, theologically speaking, there's a lot of virtue to preaching from the pulpit. I get that because you're, pre- you're preaching from the place where the word is proclaimed. And that's important. It anchors you. So there's a theological reason for it. There's also, I think, a practical reason... <laughs> In the case of, of many people who drive the people of God crazy with the constant pacing like a tiger in a cage, you know what I mean? And I've known people like that, that they, they want to be, you know, really out there and I'm relating to the people as so I'm walking around like an animal. And people say, would you please just stop? Because you're driving me crazy. So I think there's a, there's a virtue as well, if that's a problem you have, to get yourself just sort of anchored in place. Um, now, having said that, uh, I've, because I, I came of age this way, when I was ordained back in the mid-80s, I mean, everyone walked away from the, the pulpit and to establish a greater contact with the people. And depending partially on the architecture, I find, of, of the church, if the pulpit really is far removed or it's too far up or something. So I tend to do that. I tend to come out and, and establish more of a direct contact. Um, but partially it depends on, on, um, on the geography of the place. Now as a bishop, you know, something I've, I've done, there was a professor at Mundelein, a good friend of mine, Bob Schoenstein, and Bob always preached from the chair. And I think there's a great power to that as well. It's one of the legitimate places you can preach from. So the chair, you know, where we pray from, I think that had a certain power. So part of it's theological, part of it's practical. My own method, I didn't do it today because of the, I didn't have the mic on, but I tend to come out, you know, from the pulpit and preach. But I wouldn't say that's written in stone. 
Okay, great. So now we've got a book recommendation that, that uh, this priest was looking for, and I'm sure that others will share that desire. So the question is, what is, you've talked a lot about the importance of drawing from the Old Testament in preaching. And so the question is, what's the best scholarly respected book that you're aware of on the fulfillment of the Old Testament? Oh, N.T. Wright, I would say. The one I referenced, the Jesus and the Victory of God. It's about four volumes or maybe five volumes. Uh, that was a, a life-changing book for me when I found it. You know what's funny about that book, too, is I found it through a really negative review. You know, you're reading about a book, and, and this, the reviewer hated it. But as I'm reading the review, I thought, well, that sounds really interesting. That, that sounds really good. So I went over. I remember I was, at, I was at the University of Notre Dame. I was there as a scholar in residence. And I went to the bookstore, and I looked up. I didn't know this name at all. And there was a whole shelf of his books. So I bought the whole thing. And uh, it really, it changed my whole approach to it. So I think from a scholarly standpoint, that's the best. Um, read Brant Petrie if you want. Now, Brant writes academic books as well, but he writes popular books too. He's good at that too, I think, of showing the links with the, uh, the Old Testament. But you know who the best people are? The fathers of the church. They did it in their sleep. That's all they did. Is they, and they were much closer to the biblical time than we are. You know, So I, I would strongly recommend the fathers, but, but read uh, N.T. Wright um, today. So the next question, um, it goes into this somewhat of a revival of more of a somewhat fear-based uh, proposal of the faith, sort of a, of a, of a fear of the afterlife and, and the like. Um, and they mentioned that, you know, there's, in the Word on Fire movement, we talk about a lot about, you know, attracting people by the joy of the Christian life. So how would you respond to those who emphasize maybe a more fear-based preaching versus that of, of leading with joy? Yeah, um... I mean, I just I do a lot with uh, younger people and with nuns, you know, those who have no faith at all, who are antipathetic to religion. Uh, beginning with hell strikes me as a complete non-starter for those people. Certainly, hell is just an appalling absurdity. I mean, they barely believe in God, and so to begin the outreach with that strikes me as just beyond crazy. Um, and then with with believers, I mean, I, I tend to subscribe to the more Balthazarian idea of, of the beautiful. I mean, to begin with what's compelling about the faith and what's fascinating and life-giving about it. Now, all the language of, um, of uh, punishment, even ultimate punishment, is altogether legitimate. Remember this morning I talked about spiritual physics. So it's not like, it's not uh, hate-based or retribution-based, it's spiritual physics. If you refuse the love of God, that produces in you a hellish, Situation, And we all know that. That's not, to me, mysterious at all. If you turn away from the divine love, it becomes a hellish place in you. The old mind that we have to get beyond, that's a hellish mind. It produces this terrible suffering. And what the Lord wants is to get us out of hell. He wants to get us out of that. Now, is there a state of definitive rejection of the divine love? Sure, it's a possibility. I don't know if anyone's in that state for sure. The church has never said so definitively. So I don't know. I hope not. But is it a real possibility? Of course. And, and we sense it now. So I get the language of, of fear. I mean, the prophets use it. Jesus uses it, uh, kind of a threatening language at times. But don't read that emotionally as a, as a sort of irrational desire for retribution. It's spiritual physics. If you turn away from the divine love, it lights up a fire of suffering in you. That's origin, by the way. Uh, and he's echoed by C.S. Lewis in the 20th century. Namely, Heaven and hell, in a way, are the same place, right? But 
if you're open to the divine love, it becomes a paradise in you. It becomes a, a source of life. If you're closed off to the divine love, it becomes a fire that burns you. you know? So it, it's the same place in a way, <laughs> but it's, it's what our attitude toward it uh, is that makes the difference. So I, I'm fine with that language. It has a place in our religious rhetoric. But like with the nuns and the non-believers, I would never recommend beginning with that. I begin with anything else. Um, but with, with believers, I would, I would talk about it, but I wouldn't lead with it. Uh, I think you begin with the, with the beautiful and the good and the true, you know. Um, now resist those things, trouble will come. Absolutely. Like, you know, this beautiful building, jump off the roof, you'll be dead. It's just the beautiful Pacific Ocean, but you jump in it and in an indiscriminate way, you'll be dead. So that's the way it goes, you know. Uh, so I have no quarrel with that, but I wouldn't lead with it. Great. Okay. Bishop Barron, you're a very prolific writer. You've proven that uh, by writing scholarly books. You've written essays. You've written books at a popular level and regular articles online. So the question is, do you ever get writer's block? And if you do, what are the remedies you use to get past that? Uh, I, I would say, honestly, no. I, I've not really experienced that. I started writing seriously in 1990, it would have been, when I was in Paris, and I was starting work on my doctoral paper. And um, I remember distinctly uh, praying and saying, okay, Lord, I'm starting my doctoral paper. Please guide me. And from that time, really, I've never stopped writing. So I, I've always been writing something, whether, as you say, it's a book or it's, a, it's an article or it's a longer uh, study. Um, when I was doing my doctoral work, I wrote six pages a day. Now, mind you, that's when I had nothing else to do. It was my full-time job was to write. But I produced six pages a day, double-spaced. Um, and at the end of that, I, I stopped. And I went for a walk, or I, I enjoyed Paris, or whatever. But I forced myself to write six pages every day. And I, I can't do that anymore. But I, I do, in a way, force myself to write all the time. And in a way, it's good now. I've got to write sermons. I've got to write columns. I have to write, you know, books and so on. So I, I have to do it. But I think it's just that steady practice. Um, not that I'm writing deathless prose at every, you know, uh, sitting. But I, I, you get to your, John Paul called it your intellectual workbench. I've always liked that. Like, I'm okay, I'm at my intellectual workbench. I'm now going to work. I've always loved it. I've heard it William James ascribe to him, other people, that... I hate writing, but I love having written. And I, I have that feeling a lot. I think writing is like breaking rocks. I really do. I, I, I don't find it easy. I think it's very hard. And um, I do try to pay attention to sentences and to you know balance and rhythms and that sort of thing. And I think it's very hard, but I love having written. <laughs> so I found it to be a great source of joy for me. And I must say, honestly, I, I don't think I've ever really experienced that writer's block. I, I've... You know, now maybe I'm not that good. I'm supposed to be great writers. Might get stuck, but uh, I've not really experienced that. Well, as a as a fellow writer, just to also add to that, one thing that was suggested to me is that go back and read some of your favorite authors. It helps you get through that block. It helps you kind of gain some inspiration uh, from them as well. But uh, to go into uh, the next question, 
Uh, so Pope Francis recently spoke about the evils of clericalism, uh, particularly in his recent letter that just came out uh, in regard to the scandals. And so um, how would you uh, define clericalism and, and how would you guide a priest to stay away from those so that they can really focus in on evangelicalism and, and evangelization? Yeah, good. Um... I go back to Cardinal George again, who always said it's when you dissociate holy orders from baptism, that's clericalism, that you forget the connection to the baptized. I mean, we exist as priests only to serve the baptized. That's the only reason we're here. You know, our baptism matters much more than our holy orders. That's much more fundamental to us, being grafted onto Christ. And so holy orders serves the baptized. When you forget that, then you have clericalism. You have a sort of obsession with holy orders in itself, and you forget that it's a, it's a ministry always of service. So I, I guess I define it that way. It's a, it's a, a problem in sacramental theology, that you, you divorce them. Then what does it look like on the ground? It looks like all these things the Pope is always complaining about, quite rightly, you know, looking for privilege and status and honor. And I mentioned it today. I mean, wealth, pleasure, power, honor. And, and for us, you know, some people kind of shoe those first three pretty well, but honor, you know, the titles and status and prerogatives that we kind of like that. And um, it's a substitute for God, one of the big four. So that's how we fall into it. Um, I guess it's always the return to service, that you're there to serve uh, the saints, to make saints, to help people become holy. That's why we exist. And when you forget that, then we fall back sort of, curvatus in se, right? Augustine's thing. We become caved in on ourselves, and that's clericalism. Um, now, it should never conduce toward a sort of uh, a hatred for the priesthood or a shame of the priesthood. Now, when I was coming of age, and many in this room know what I'm talking about, that was more of a problem, I think. If people were ashamed, you know, ever to wear a collar, or ever to, uh, you know, say that you're a priest because, because you're a clericalist. Well, that's silly, too. I, I mean, no, no, you proudly claim who you are. You're a priest of Jesus Christ, ordained for service. <laughs> so in that balance, you find the right place. Um, but we, you know, we oscillate. Paul Tillich was right about that. You know, the great polarities, we're always oscillating back and forth. In my lifetime, I've seen it over and over again, oscillating back and forth. Oh, they're too clerical. And oh, they're this. The right balance is, is holy order serves baptism. I think that's the, that's the solution to it. Okay, so we've got a question here about the sacred scriptures. So, Bishop Barron, can you please expound on the distinction between what is in the Bible and what the Bible teaches, and how does this inform preaching? Yeah, good. That phrase, I don't know if you picked it up from me. I got it from uh, William Plaker. William Plaker died way too young. He was a uh, Protestant thinker, taught at Wabash College in Indiana. Um, he was a student of... Um, He's in the Yale School of Theology, kind of a colleague of Stanley Hauerwas in, in that post-liberal school, which I'm very fond of, actually. And Plaker uh, used that line, which I thought was very useful, the distinction between what's in the Bible and what the Bible's teaching. So there are a lot of things that are in the Bible, right? a lot of things you can point to, which is why quoting the Bible out of context is almost always a non-starter, because you can find pretty much anything you want in the Bible. Even, you know, there is no God. But you forget the fool said in his heart, there is no God. But I mean, my point is, you can find whatever you want in the Bible. But there are a lot of things, his point was, that are kind of along for the ride culturally. They were part of the cultural milieu of the time, or maybe even some of the cultural detritus of the time that was carried along in the Bible. Better, Plaker said, and I agree with this, to attend to the 
themes and patterns and trajectories within the Bible to find out what the Bible really is teaching on something. Um, you know, maybe a good example in our American context is uh, slavery. Think of the slavery debate in the 19th century. You had a lot of Bible-believing people on both sides of that issue. A lot of people saying, hey, look, the Bible talks about slavery and seems to countenance slavery, and Paul, you know, kind of assumes it. But then other people were saying, yeah, but look at the great trajectory of the Bible toward liberation, toward love of, of even one's enemies, toward the dignity of each individual. We're all called. The, the, the thematic pattern and trajectory of the Bible runs totally against that idea. So I think that might be an example of, of what the Bible teaches and what's in the Bible. Uh, I just found it to be kind of a pregnant uh, distinction, that it was a helpful way to get at some of these difficulties. I mean, not that it solves every problem. We're going to have debates forever, or, or, like, well, which one is it? <laughs> is, that, is that what the Bible teaches, or is that simply long for the ride? And what I'd say as a Catholic, our way to handle that is, well, what's the church telling us? Because we don't read the Bible uh, in abstraction, but we read it precisely in the church. And the church helps us know what are the patterns, themes, and trajectories, and what's you know, along for the ride. Um, anyway, that's what I found. For preaching, I'd say attend to what the Bible teaches. Attend to the patterns, themes, and trajectories within the Bible. Mind you, too, it, he's still behind me, I'm sure, the Lord on the cross. Yeah. Um, that, that wonderful passage in the book of Revelation, you know, when there's the scroll with the seven seals, and who will open the scroll? And, you know, everyone's weeping because no one can open the scroll. And then, oh, the lion of Judah is coming, we hear. And, but then not a lion, but out comes a little lamb standing as though slain. So, of course, it's the lamb of God crucified. And it's only that little lamb that opens the scroll. Now, what's the point? <laughs> the point is the only way properly to interpret the whole of the Bible is from the standpoint of Christ crucified. He's the interpretive key of the whole Bible. So when you say, oh, you might look in the Old Testament, you got Yahweh is, is demanding the you know, genocidal slaughter of entire peoples. Origen saw this in the third century. That couldn't possibly be in line, though, with what we know from Christ crucified. And so he gives his allegorizing reading of those passages. You know what I'm saying? It's a good example. Of, he would say that's in the Bible, but not what the Bible's teaching. How do we know it? Because we know the ultimate hermeneutical uh, criterion. This is stuff we could do a whole semester course on it. But I mean, I think that's a way, that's what Plaker's driving at. Well, this next question is very serious. It says, which is your favorite Simpsons episode or Simpsons religious humor and why? Yeah, I'm a big Simpsons fan. I had the chance, uh, one of the perks of being in L.A., you can do some of these fun things. I got a chance to uh, be in around the table for a, a table reading for a Simpsons episode. So I met the actors, you know, the voices, and uh, it was a great thrill. What's my favorite one? Gosh, uh, I quote the Simpsons all the time. They're like in my imagination, the one-liners. I love the one when Homer uh, decides to gain weight because he wants to work at home. So to go on like workers' disability, and then he goes shopping for new clothes, and he goes to a shop that specializes in judicial robes, moo-moos, and <laughs> and something else. You know, that's one of my favorites. Uh, I love the, the the Catholic Protestant one. You know, when uh, Bart and Homer become Catholics, and uh, he's taken the exam, and he has on his his arm his cheat sheet. He has it's like Satan bad, God good. You know, <laughs> just to just to clarify things. 
And then the, the Protestant and Catholic heaven appear at the end. I mean, so that's, that's a good one from a religious. Whenever God appears in The Simpsons, it's always very funny. But also, I told, I told the writers when I met them at that thing, I said, it's, it is always res- respectful that when God appears, there's kind of a, there's a certain sense of, of sublimity about it. And um, one time God and The Simpsons, I forget the story, but Homer is trying to escape from God. He's in a car, in a car and God's following this beam of lights, following him. And then Homer jumps the train tracks right in front of the train, and then God has to stop. And he goes, I'm too old and rich for this. <laughs> anyway, I just, I love the, uh, whenever God comes up in The Simpsons, it's pretty, it's pretty good. Great. <laughs> I... Who else can take The Simpsons and give a theological exposition like that? That's the Canadian commentary. Great. That's great, Great. eh? Great. Okay, so something a little bit more serious here. So you've done some commentary on the work of Jordan Peterson, who's done some very important work, I think, on the cultural norm of political correctness. Uh, So this question is asking, can you say something about the challenge of preaching in an era of political correctness? Uh, yeah, you mentioned Jordan Peterson, whom I, I do like in some ways. And I'll tell you, Jordan Peterson is, is uh, getting through to young men, especially, uh, which I think is very interesting. And he does it with a lot of tough, straight talking to them and smart talking. Uh, the first time I came across Jordan Peterson was someone recommend. I just heard the name and they said, oh, watch him on YouTube. So I look up on YouTube. And it's Jordan Peterson, this, this kind of rumpled professor, sitting in a chair like this in a poorly lit room, and he has a book open on his lap, and it's Nietzsche's uh, Beyond Good and Evil. And he's commenting for like an hour and 20 minutes. I'm not kidding. And I look underneath, it says like 1,475,000 views. What in the world? This, who is this guy? You know. So I started listening to him. And you begin to see, though, what it is, that he's appealing, especially to young men, with this, you know... Not playing the games of political correctness and, and uh, not uh, pandering to everyone's feelings all the time, but speaking like a bit like the spiritual teachers of, of all traditions, East and West. You know, the spiritual teachers that kind of lay it out and, and tell you to wake up and tell you to get down to work and get to business. So I think that's what's appealing about him. Um, the, you know, the political correctness thing, what, what bothers me so much, talking to the young people, are all the the safe space business, and I can't handle an opinion that might upset me, and the trigger warnings. I, I, I'm not making this up. There was a trigger warning someone showed me on the critique of pure reason. Kant, the critique of pure reason, had a trigger warning. I don't know, God knoweth why, but something in the critique of pure reason was bothering someone at Berkeley or something. You know. So that to me is utterly for the birds. And I think it really does a great disservice to young people. Um, you know, grow up. I mean, there's ideas that you don't like. Well, so what? I mean, deal with them. Uh, no one wants people to be cruel. They don't want them to be, to be prejudiced and all those terrible things, of course. But, you know, that we, there can be an honest exchange of, of viewpoints and something might upset you a little bit. We won't have a, a free country without that for very long. That's, that's, I do share that fear that we won't have an honest political dialogue if everyone is so easily offended. So when it comes to religion, of course, you know, people get triggered all the time because you're talking about God and God is the ultimate value. And, uh, so I, I do get that. Um, 
I don't know. I, I think we could probably take a page from Peterson, though, that, that would reclaim our own sense, not, not being obnoxious, not being cruel and prejudiced and all those bad things, but taking a page from Peterson and speaking you know, boldly, confidently, out of our own spiritual tradition. I agree with um, uh, my colleague, um, Chris Kazor. You know, Chris, who teaches down at LMU, very fine guy. And he's engaged Peterson. And he said, what he's doing with the Bible, and I don't know if you've read Peterson on the Bible, on Genesis, Exodus, the great stories. He said he's doing what the church fathers would have called the moral reading of Scripture. So you have the different levels of, you know, the four senses of Scripture. He's doing like a moral reading. And in our culture, that often means a psychological reading. So Peterson's a Jungian. He does a kind of archetypal psychology reading of these. Good, good. I think that's great. But I want to bring the other senses in too, and not just the psychological or moral sense. So that's a rambling answer to two complex questions. All right, and this will probably be our, our last question for this episode. Um, so in your opening remarks, you said that we did not choose these difficult times. We were chosen for them. How can pre-support one another in the mission to be saints? It's softball questions I'm getting today. Oh, man. Yeah, I, I, I first of all reiterate what I said. I think that's, that's right. I mean, in God's providence, this is the time that we have. And so we have, you know, that's a Jean-Pierre de Cossade, uh, who is not a thinker like Aquinas, not encyclopedic, but he's a guy that had one really good idea and said it over and over again, which is that everything that you experience is in some sense the divine will, either directly or permissively, right? That whatever happened, either God wants it directly or at least he permitted it. And so once you see that, Kosad argued, your whole life will change. Okay, everything in one sense is the will of God. So I've been, we've been given this time. What do we do with it? You know? Now, then you can shake your fist at it, you can swear at it, you can bemoan it, you can retreat from it, or you can engage it now through love. That's always the answer. That's always the right answer for us, is what's right now willing the good of the other? You know, now, as, as I look at it, willing the good of the other includes a number of things. You know? So the, our great concern, of course, for the victims first and foremost. A great concern for our brothers, and that's implicit in the question. I mean, how do we help each other? Um, a great concern for righting a wrong within the church, to do something to uh, rectify the situation, to reestablish justice. That's a form of willing the good of the other. So the call of the moment is always the call of love. Now what that looks like, we gotta figure that out. You know? um, how do we encourage each other is, um, the priesthood is greater than this time. Uh, it's the priesthood of Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. We've been called into that priesthood and called to be bearers of his grace and mercy to the world. That's greater than any crisis we're going through. Um, cling to that. Enter into that. Encourage each other in that. Um, and, you know, I, I do think, to get more practical, uh, we've been really derelict when it comes to fraternal correction. I think brothers, and I've been a priest for 33 years, I've not been great at it. Um, fraternal correction, do we, do we sometimes get in our brothers' faces when we should? You know, that we, we tell them, look, this thing you're doing, or you know, I've been noticing behaviors of yours that really are not right, and uh, I think we've been bad at that. And even, even those uh, in, in high positions who should be doing it in terms of their office, but even those of us on the ground, just with our friends, have we challenged them when they're out of step with, um, with what they're called to be? So that's part of it. But all of it's under the aegis of love. 
and of responding to this present moment, which in some sense is the will of God. It's, we've been chosen for this time, you know? Um, I, know I hope that helps a bit, but I, I'm trying to muse my way through it too. Well, we hope you enjoyed this Q&A with Bishop Barron and all the priests attending the first ever Word on Fire conference for priests. But as always, thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week on the Word on Fire show. Mm-hmm.